can you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16? Okay, Romans 16. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Chencrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and a sister in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Epineatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who laboured much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristopolis. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have laboured in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who laboured much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them, Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, Note those who cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore I am glad on your behalf but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, our brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now we'll leave verses 25 to 27 till a little bit later on. At first sight, chapter 16 can appear to be just a list of greetings that are of little or no spiritual value to us, particularly since we know little about most of those mentioned. However, as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 
all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, God has allowed this chapter become, to become part of his word for a reason. He has a purpose in its inclusion into the scriptures. And though it seems that this is one of those sections of God's word where we do have to mine a little deeper in order to extract its treasures and understand the important lessons that God wants us to learn. Now, one very important lesson that stands out in particular, the fact there are so many greetings confirms that this is a document written to real people in a real place at a particular time in history. And given the length of the letter and the sheer volumes written about it, one can get the impression that Romans is a detailed theological thesis written for the academic and the professional theologian and therefore completely beyond the comprehension of the normal believer. However, the clear message of chapter 16 is that this letter was written for the benefit and encouragement of ordinary men and women who love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It is therefore written to be understood by the likes of you and me. We also need to notice that chapter 16 does not consist of greetings only. There are two other important sections. In the middle of the chapter, in verses 17 to 20, Paul wrote an important message as to how we are to identify and deal with those who seek to deceive and divide the body of believers. And right at the end of the chapter, Paul gave a final blessing, leaving his readers' attention on the wisdom of God and the gospel that saves them. Let's begin, though, by considering these greetings. Careful study reveals three important themes. The importance of relationships, the blessing of hospitality, and the value of service. Before looking more deeply into these, there is one more general point I want to make concerning these greetings. In verses 3 to 15, we are reading about people who are present in Rome, or who were present in Rome, who received those greetings. Whereas in verses 21 to 23, those listed are with Paul, in all likelihood in Corinth, and they send their greetings. However, the chapter begins by considering one person in particular, a lady by the name of Phoebe, who Paul described as a, a servant of the church in Chenkria. Now, Chenkria was a small port town situated about 10 kilometres, that's about six miles, east of Corinth itself. And given Paul's request that the church receive her in the Lord, it seems to suggest that Phoebe may well have been the person who actually transported and delivered this precious letter. It's highly likely that she was Paul's postman, or postwoman, to be more correct. So Paul began chapter 16 by saying a few words of recommendation about her. He was, in effect, giving her a reference, informing the church in Rome that she was authentic, a genuine believer in whom the fruit of the Spirit was outwardly evident. She was a servant who could be trusted, and Paul is confident of this since he had experienced the enormous blessings that were a consequence of her service 
and one who bore witness to the fact that many others had done so as well. He therefore requested that she be received and given assistance in whatever business she had need. Now some have taken the description of Phoebe as a servant, the word in Greek is diakonos, and tried to use it to justify the belief that the office of deacon was held by women in the early church. However, it seems to me more likely that Paul was simply referring to her as a loyal servant in a general sense, rather than suggesting that she held a particular office. This is the more logical conclusion, since Paul wrote in a later letter, 1 Timothy, let deacons each be of one wife. Here Paul is clearly referring to the office of deacon, and a straightforward reading of the text suggests that the office of deacon, like that of elder, was to be the responsibility of men. Now, there will no doubt be those who disagree with this position. One thing is clear, though. It is self-evident from chapter 16 just how much Paul valued the service of women within the church at that time. In the list of greetings, there are at least seven women mentioned who are commended for their diligent, faithful and loyal service, which Paul keenly acknowledged was a great blessing to him personally and to others beside. And it's also clear just how much love, respect and honour that Paul felt towards Phoebe and therefore he urged the church to welcome and support her accordingly. So let's now focus our attention more fully on those three themes I mentioned earlier. We begin first by considering relationships. Now it cannot have escaped your attention that the number of people that Paul has addressed by their name. On one or two occasions he does refer to groups of people such as the households of Aristopolis and Narcissus but these are the exceptions. Now I can't overemphasize the importance of this. As many of you know I spent nearly 30 years as a school teacher and during my career I was regularly called upon to either train student teachers or to mentor more junior members of staff. It was standard practice for student teachers to observe my classes before making their first attempts at teaching themselves. And what appeared so easy while they were watching would often prove to be far more difficult than it looked. So many were keen to find out why and would ask, what is the secret? Sadly, many took a lot of convincing as to the solution. They were expecting a highly technical response, a complex solution which addressed every boy's needs and preferred learning style. And when I told them that there was one thing that they could instantly do that would have a far bigger effect than anything else they would learn, some seemed disappointed at its simplicity. So what is this amazing secret? Well, it's simply this. Learn their names. When you ask a question, start by saying their name. Kevin. Can you tell me? Fred, can you help me with this? Some students would even protest. How am I supposed to the names of or identify 25 to 30 individuals I've never seen before? And my response? I told them to do it the same way as I did. When I addressed a particular class for the first time, before asking my question, I would ask the boy, I worked in an all-boys school, if you're wondering why it's all boys, <laughs> okay? I would ask the boy his name. Then I would deliberately use his name as I asked the question. What's your name? Imran. Imran, can you tell me the chemical formula of water? My aim was that that during the first lesson I would try to ask every boy in the class one question, always beginning that question by first stating their name. Now in teaching a great deal is made 
of using open-ended questions rather than those which required a simple yes, no or single word response. So I would advise the trainee teacher to write down the questions they wanted to ask as part of their preparation and then to assign each question to a name on the register. And as their lessons progressed, I would get them to assign relatively easy closed questions to those who were particularly shy at first and then to ask more open questions when they sensed the confidence of that student beginning to grow. And by doing these sorts of things, it communicates that you're interested in them and concerned for them. Successful teaching is primarily about first establishing a good relationship with those you teach. It builds the confidence and trust necessary for good progress to be made. And chapter 16 suggests that Paul understood this principle. The fact that he was careful to address as many people by name demonstrates that he highly valued his relationship with each one and that he was keen to maintain it and to continue it in the future. Now, some commentators on this passage have suggested that Paul may not have personally met all those he named at the time of writing. They suggested that some he only knew by reputation. Now, I don't know how one could test that. However, it is clear that many of those named he knew well and was very close to. For instance, he addressed Epineatus and Plius, Stachys and Persis as my beloved. Well, you hardly do that to someone you only know by reputation. He thought of the mother of Rufus as if she were his own mother. Now, this clearly tells us that these were close personal friends. He also mentions fellow workers such as Urbanus and fellow countrymen, meaning Jews, such as Herodian. These are people he has clearly worked with and met personally. However, he reserved special mention for those who have loyally stuck by him through hard times. Andronicus and Junia, who uh, endured a prison sentence with him and whose reputation was, uh, was, was great among the apostles. It doesn't mean in that passage that they were apostles, that they were well known to the apostles. And then there's, of course, Priscilla and Aquila. And we read quite a bit about the two years or so that they spent ministering with Paul. And it says Priscilla and Aquila, they even risked their lives for him. All of these people are clearly precious to Paul and he wanted to communicate that to them. He wanted to communicate that he had not forgotten them, that they are very much in his thoughts and more importantly in his prayers. And I don't think it was just Paul who felt this way. You see, you get the distinct impression, reading verses 21 to 23, that the likes of Timothy, Lucius and the others listed were all tugging at the arm of Tertius, who wrote down the letter, saying, don't forget to pass on my greetings and blessings too. It was clear that those separated by time, distance and circumstance, they were each keen to be remembered and to communicate that they each longed for a future time when the relationships they had once enjoyed could be continued once more. Now that's the sort of thing we do too. Whenever I visit Frank, he's always mindful to send his love, blessings and greetings to the church and for us to remember him particularly in our prayers. And when Kim and Neil went to South Africa in the summer, we were all keen to send our love to Alan and Ronell and equally keen to receive the the greetings they sent back to us. And no doubt we're all eager to know how Ashok and Anita are settling in back in India and for them to find a new home where they can happily serve the Lord. 
So this list of greetings teaches us how important maintaining and continuing relationships with God's people were to Paul, his companions and to the members of the early Roman church. They knew and understood the importance of meeting together, sharing experiences, working together and remaining faithful through hard times that involved much suffering on occasions. Now this brings me to the second of the three themes I mentioned earlier. The blessing of hospitality. You see, in the late 50s AD, it was highly unlikely that the church would not would have had a building in the centre of Rome large enough to accommodate all the Christians meeting at the same time. From what Paul wrote about Priscilla and Aquila in verse 5, greet the church that is in their house, one gets the distinct impression that they would normally have met as separate congregations in different people's homes. The mention of the households of Aristobulus and Narcissus could be evidence that supports this. And further supporting evidence would be that when the Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome in AD 49, he did not expel the Gentile Christians also. It would appear that they went largely unnoticed. Now that's hardly likely if a large group of them were regularly meeting in the middle of the city. Churches meeting in as smaller groups in homes seems to have been the case back in Corinth where Paul was writing this letter. In verse 23, Paul mentions Gaius who hosted the church there. So the willingness to open one's homes for meeting together was vitally important for the successful functioning of the church at that time. Hospitality was essential to allow these precious relationships to grow and to flourish. Church isn't the building, it's the people. The third theme that we can discern from these greetings is the value of service. Work is part of the normal expression of the Christian life. As was read earlier, we are not saved by our works, but we were saved for them. As Paul made clear in his letter to the Ephesians, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the term, walk in them. The Christian life is described by Paul as walking in the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Walking in the Spirit therefore involves work. In his list of greetings, Paul commends a number of people for their hard work and diligent service. Mary, who laboured much on their behalf. Tryphena and Tryphosa and the beloved Persis, who laboured in the Lord. And of course, we must not forget the valuable service of Phoebe that we reflected upon earlier. Work, service and servanthood are part of the outworking of the Christian faith, since Christ himself came in the form of a servant, obedient unto death, as we read in Philippians chapter 2. And this is what Jesus taught. You will no doubt recall the occasion when the mother of two of his disciples came to him requesting that they sit at his right hand and left hand in his kingdom. And Jesus' response was to inform her that such a decision belonged not to him, but to his father. However, he went on to teach the way to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, Let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. Now, having considered 
how the long list of greetings revealed the importance and value of genuine love and relationship were to Paul, it's therefore not surprising that he would want to do all that he could to maintain and preserve these relationships. So before closing his letter, he felt the need to give a final word of warning concerning potential threats to their fellowship. He began in verse 17 with an urgent appeal as to the dangers of false brethren and false teachers. Now I urge you, brethren. And Paul identified two specific dangers. Division. Note those who cause division, he says. And deception. Those who give offensive contrary to the doctrine which you learned. He was concerned to alert them to these dangers and to give instruction as to how they were to identify them and what to do about it. He drew attention to the fact that such people are not easy to identify. They don't announce themselves, but rather they disguise themselves behind smooth talk and flattery. They are outwardly gregarious and appear to say all the right things. However, not everyone was taken in. Paul made made clear that it was who who it was who were who would be deceived. Those who sought to deceive and divide would target the vulnerable, the inexperienced, those who are not yet mature in the faith. Notice the presence of such people does not make it a bad church. As Paul made clear in verse 19, this was a good church with a reputation for obedience. Now Brian has been teaching us about another good church, the Philippian church, noted for its joy. Well, the Philippian church had the same problem too. And Paul had to write something very similar to them in Philippians chapter 3. So the presence of those who sow division and seek to uh, seek to deceive is something that good churches need to be mindful of and not to be naive about facing up to the challenges that they present. In order to effectively deal with such a problem, Paul taught them how to identify them, what to look out for. Paul stated in verse 19 to be wise in what is good. You see, the best way to identify the counterfeit is by being thoroughly familiar with the genuine. And you will no doubt be aware of how efficient the counter staff are in banks are at detecting forged notes. Since they are so used to the feel of the genuine, they can quickly identify the counterfeit despite its outward apparent similarities. Regular study and thorough knowledge of God's word are the best defence against false teachers and their contrary doctrines. However, the kind of people Paul was eager for them to be able to identify were highly skilled at appearing to say the right thing. So Paul directed their attention, uh, or the attention of his readers, to consider also the inner character and motivation of those who were a cause of division and deception. Such people, Paul stated, are not motivated by a a genuine desire to serve the Lord, but rather their own ends. They're in it for what they can get out of it. They serve their own fleshly appetites and selfish ambitions. Or as Paul bluntly put it, they serve their own belly. Now, inner attitudes affect outward conduct. So how does one identify the genuine? Jesus stated that you will know them by their fruit. Genuine leaders and teachers are evidenced by their humble dependence upon Christ and not in their own abilities. They are unselfish, faithful and of godly character.
So what does one do when deceivers and and the divisive are identified or at least strongly suspected? Paul's instruction was to avoid them. Notice he did not say remove them. Now if those false brethren were itinerant visiting speakers, avoiding them would be relatively straightforward. You simply stop inviting them. But Paul seemed to be referring to such people who were a part of the church. How does one avoid them if they're not removed? Well, we do so in the same way that Jesus did. Avoiding does not necessarily mean being absent from their presence. One of the things the scriptures teach us about Jesus is that he could avoid people even while in their presence. In John chapter 2, just before his meeting with Nicodemus, we read, Although many believed in his name on account of the signs which he did, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew them. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew their inner attitudes and motives. So Jesus used discernment and discretion to avoid people even while in their presence. Now you may well ask, why didn't Paul tell tell them to remove such people? Well, let me suggest some possible reasons. Firstly, knowing a person's inner motivation is not an exact science. It requires very careful discernment. You may be convinced that someone is not genuine. However, evidence for this is rarely clear and objective and therefore hard to prove. Although although very real, the evidence is often subjective and open to interpretation. Secondly, and far more importantly, Jesus himself told us not to. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus made it clear that the tares were not to be pulled up because in doing so, it would damage the wheat. The sorry conclusion that we have to accept from this parable is that tares, forced brethren, including teachers, will remain part of normal church life, even in good churches, until the time of the harvest of our Lord's return. Now that does not mean that there are never circumstances in which those who deceive and divide are never removed. There are passages elsewhere in which Paul deals with these. But given that Paul makes no mention of these in Romans 16, I do not feel it it would be appropriate to delve any deeper into this issue here. Suffice it to say that from what we do read in chapter 16, avoiding such people is the normal way of dealing with this issue. Removal should therefore be the exception rather than the rule. Now even though the scriptures clearly teach that this is a situation we have to accept. The scriptures also tell us that it's something we will find a cause of considerable anguish and distress. It was for Paul too. In that section of his letter to the Philippians that I mentioned earlier, Paul wrote, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even with weeping, that that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, although Paul felt the need to give the Roman church this final warning before closing the letter, he did not want to end on such a depressing note, and neither shall we. So he brought this magnificent epistle to its final conclusion by directing the attention of his readers once more to God and to the glorious gospel by which we are saved. In his closing statement, 
Paul focus once again on four themes that have been central to his letter. The power of God. This is the God who is able. The gospel of Christ. The proclamation of the gospel to all nations, that is all ethnic groups, all people groups. And praise for God's wisdom and glory. You see, Paul began this letter by declaring the power of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And having begun by declaring the power of God to save, he closes by declaring the power or ability of God to establish. To establish means to nurture, to work in us and through us so that we grow and mature. He is able to root us to bring stability into our lives so that we will stand firm. He has given us his word so that his spirit works in us, revealing his word to us. And as he does so, we are enabled to stand firm in the truth against error. He has given us his righteousness. His spirit works in our hearts to make us holy so that we can stand firm against temptation. And his spirit cries out from deep within us, Abba, Father, giving us the the assurance that we have not only been accepted, but also adopted into his family, giving us the courage to stand firm against persecution. This means, the means by which this comes about is according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, Paul stated in verse 25, my gospel. This simply means the gospel that he has preached during his lifetime since the day he first met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And Paul has given us a neat summary of that gospel in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, he wrote, For I delivered to you first of all that I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is that God is the God who... The good news is the God who created us justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the perfect sacrifice to pay the full penalty for our sins. And it is this fact, it's the fact of the resurrection that is the proof that his sacrifice was fully acceptable to God who raised him from the dead. And having fully forgiven the sin of all those who put their trust in him, God sends his Holy Spirit to indwell the hearts of those who believe in him in order to form his righteous character in them. The formation of his character is not instant, but takes place gradually over time as we walk in active cooperation with his plans and purposes, or as Paul puts it, as we walk in the Spirit. And the indwelling Spirit assures us that we have been adopted as his children. Now, this was once a mystery, but now it's been revealed. First, in part, through the prophetic writings throughout the whole of the Old Testament, but now fully in the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel by which God is able to establish us. Not only is it the gospel by which God establishes us, 
It is the gospel that is to be made known to all nations. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, we read, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And since every human being who has ever lived is a descendant of Adam, this gospel is for all people, and it is therefore to be declared to all people groups. The Christian life, walking in the Spirit, is about God's Spirit working in us and through us to form his righteous character in us. It is therefore a life of obedience, a life in which we submit to his discipline, the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. And Jesus commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. The purpose of proclaiming the gospel is to bring all who receive it into a life of discipleship. Therefore, a life of obedience to the faith. Now, in his final sentence, Paul gives praise to the wisdom wisdom and glory of God. The gospel by which we are saved, the gospel by which we are made righteous, could never have been thought of by any man. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ could only have been thought of and planned by God. Many scoff at it. Mr Dawkins dismisses it as petty. Yet all the answers to life's most difficult questions and problems are to be found in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, the gospel reveals the character of God. The character of God who so loved us that he sent his son to pay the price for our sin and rebellion against him by shedding his blood upon the cross and dying in our place. The character of God is revealed in that he justifies the ungodly on the basis of faith, bringing us into a standing of grace before him. The character of God is revealed in that he calls us to a life in which we work in active cooperation to accomplish his plans and purposes. And the character of God is revealed by the fact that he adopts us into his family and forms his righteous character within us. The gospel is the means by which we truly come to know God. And it's the knowledge that he reveals to us as we actively participate in relationship with him and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So as I bring our study of Romans to a close, I'll do so with one final thought. Over the past two years, I've given 21 talks on this letter. And given that each talk was on average about 5,000 words in length, that equates to over 100,000 words. Yet in all that I've said, I'm consciously aware that I've not said all that could have or indeed should have been said. I've barely skimmed the surface. And it's an interesting thought that there is far more in the 7,000 words that Paul wrote than in the 100,000 that I have. So I will close our study, not with my own words, but with those of Paul. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.